0: Today is Friday, October 7th, 2022. The USS Gerald R. Ford, CVN 78, arguably the most expensive warship ever built, left this week on its maiden deployment, Godspeed to the crew and the ship. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. The guests we had scheduled for today had to reschedule for next week, so I'm going to do something a little bit different instead of an interview. I'm gonna highlight the October issue of Proceedings, our annual submarine issue, and uh, touch on several of the top articles and take some questions from our live YouTube audience. So if you've got questions out there, fire them away. So here goes, starting with an article by Commander Joel Holwit. He is the current commanding officer of the USS Toledo, SSN 769. His article is titled, A New Approach to Submarine Officer Retention. It's getting a lot of attention. Uh, Joel starts by quoting the Submarine Force commander from several years ago. During the past five years, we have struggled to meet junior officer retention goals. Got it. JO retention in the Submarine Force is a problem. Commander Holowitz also cites a drop over the past two decades in the proportion of prior enlisted officers in the Submarine Force, which has had an impact on the number of lieutenants and lieutenant commanders available to fill department head jobs the Navy had to raise bonus payments to offset the drop in numbers. Commander Holwood also cites his experience in manpower in a tour where he read every submarine officer J.O. resignation letter and became convinced that most of those officers never intended to serve beyond their initial five-year commitment. So what's his idea to fix the problem? His prescription is extend the initial sea service commitment for submarine officers from five years to 10 years. This would keep lieutenants on active duty until the lieutenant commander selection slash pin-on point, creating more officers eligible for department head screening and thus making that milestone more selective. More selectivity would mean the submarine force would be more elite. As you might imagine, a lot of junior officers and midshipmen hate this idea, but it's similar to the naval aviation commitment of eight years after getting one's wings a bigger return on investment, including all that nuclear power training. So interesting piece. Let's see if there's any questions for that one. Okay, I don't see any questions yet, so I'm gonna move on to the second article from the October issue that I wanna highlight. Uh, It's by Lieutenant Commander Emma McCarthy, and it is titled, Take JOs Out of the Shipyards. Emma is currently the flag aide to the Chief of Naval Operations. Her previous job was engineering officer on board the USS Ohio SSGN 726 Blue Crew. Shipyards and overhauls are a big problem for the Navy right now, and that's been admitted all the way up to the Chief of Naval Operations, both for the submarine force and the surface Navy. Lieutenant Commander McCarthy points out that from 2015 to 2019, 75% of all submarine shipyard availabilities, and the Navy calls a shipyard period an availability, 75% were completed late, with an average of 225 additional days. So that's seven and a half more months than the submarine and the crew expected to spend in the yards when they went in. So some junior officers arrive at their first submarine and spend most, if not all, of the tour with that boat in the yards. Now, they'll spend some time on another operational submarine to get their tactical qualifications, but the impact on morale is huge. Rather than extending their initial service commitment, as Commander Holwitt suggested, Emma argues that two nuclear-trained limited-duty officers should be assigned to each submarine in overhaul to serve as duty officers, quality assurance officers, and availability managers. Uh, And this would mirror what the nuclear Navy does for the carrier force. And it would free up junior officers to serve on operational boats and focus more on their tactical skills. A number of readers have lamented that the problem isn't just impacting the morale of junior officers, but all submarine crew members, including enlisted members, are affected by long overhauls. Submariners signed up to operate their boats at sea, not in the shipyards. The next article I would mention is retired Captain Michael McCulley, a former enlisted submariner who became a Navy pilot and then a NASA astronaut in the 1980s, in a submariner in space... Captain Macaulay recalls the highlights of his 1989 mission aboard the space shuttle Atlantis and his thoughts looking down at the world ocean and remembering his service on board several submarines, including the USS Tennessee, SSBN 734, and USS Ulysses S. Grant, SSBN 631. Quote, like the space shuttle, he writes, a submarine is a crowded world. A gym in the bilges of the missile compartment, stacked bunks that often belong to more than one sailor, a galley and a crew mess so small that eating must be done in shifts. Politeness is required, teamwork a must. Awe-inspiring was the integration of the American sailor with the complicated hardware and software. A submarine is a living, breathing vehicle operating in a hostile environment whose success is tied to both the men and women and the machine. Great pictures in this article, too, by the way, uh, many of them contributed by Captain McCully. In October, both the American Sea Power Project and the Maritime Counterinsurgency Project continue. We're going to talk in depth next week about the American Sea Power article in October. So I wanted to highlight retired Captain Peter Swartz's counterinsurgency article, One Officer's Lessons from Vietnam. As a junior officer, Peter deployed to Vietnam in the late 1960s and participated in naval and maritime counterinsurgency operations. He describes the five principal lines of effort required. First, population and resources control. Second, environmental improvement. Third, guerrilla and counter-guerrilla operations. Fourth, psychological operations. And fifth, intelligence and counterintelligence. Captain Swartz's chief takeaway from the war was this. The most important elements were diplomacy, air superiority, logistics, Coast Guard and Marine Corps participation, special operations, language and cultural mastery, and training. A number of the images in this article are from Peter's personal collection. And if you're if you're not aware of who Captain Swartz is, he is one of the authors of the 1980s Navy Maritime Strategy. He's one of the original and best strategic-minded officers we've ever had in the the modern Navy post-World War II. Uh, And he's just a fine gentleman who's written for proceedings for many, many years. So I'm a huge fan of of Captain Swartz. Uh, My chief takeaway from his article is that maritime coin is a complex, difficult endeavor. But the only thing harder than doing it right would be allowing the Chinese to have their way in the South China Sea. If you haven't caught the maritime counterinsurgency articles, you can go back to the July issue of Proceedings where we published eight of them, kicked off the uh, the project, and we've been trickling out one or two a month uh, online and in the magazine since then with a few more to go. It's a great project. Uh, this month's Asked and Answered column asked readers this question. What was the most difficult or unexpected aspect of your nuclear power program interview or training. It elicited a lot of stories about personal interviews with Admiral Hyman Rickover. Some of these are a bit cringeworthy in today's environment, but funny nonetheless. So the first one came from Admiral retired, four-star Admiral retired, Robert Kelly, an aviator accepted into the nuclear carrier CO pipeline. He wrote, I was in command of an A7 Corsair squadron when I interviewed with Admiral Rickover. He asked if I was married. Yes. He then asked how many children I had. Three. He then asked how many more. None, I said. He asked how I knew that. I responded, I had had a vasectomy and my wife had had a hysterectomy. He kicked me out of the office, but I was ultimately accepted into the nuclear power program and went on to command the USS Enterprise. Commander John McGrail, U.S. Navy, wrote wrote a, a story that just could not happen today. In my 1972 interview, after a few routine questions, Admiral Rickover asked, do you dance? Yes, Admiral. Rickover then shouts, bring in Ensign Smith. In comes a terrified young female Ensign. Rickover shouts at her, dance with Midshipman McGrail. Trembling, she replies, I can't dance without music. The Admiral looks at me and asks, can you sing? No, Admiral. Rickover then bellows, get Ensign Jones in here. In comes another female Ensign. He orders her, sing for these two. She starts to stammer and Rickover shouts, everyone out. A few few months later, I was commissioned and reported to nuclear power training, Bainbridge, Maryland. Uh, And finally, this story is just amazing. Captain James Ransom, US Navy writes, during my interview with Admiral Rickover, I told him that while on my first submarine, I rescued a man who was swept overboard. Admiral Rickover stated he had rescued a man once too, but the Navy would have been better off if he had let him drown. Stunned, bad start to my interview, but I was selected and lived happily ever after. So let's take a look at what we got for uh, audience questions. Austere Roberto says, big facts, especially with uh, Commander McCarthy's article. Yeah, the the facts about the shipyard uh, extensions are just amazing. I also wanted to mention... Um, that uh, I started off by mentioning the uh, the USS Gerald R Ford is on its maiden deployment, and and that ship is has been an incredibly expensive ship, one that has you know gone over budget and over time. But what a lot of people might not know is that the the Navy and and also Huntington Ingalls are not to blame for uh, for all the. The, the delays in getting that ship to sea and getting her ready for deployment. When the decision was made to to build the USS Ford, the the question came up to the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, at the time. The Navy wanted to build the follow-on to the Nimitz class carriers, um, had a, a rough design in mind, and uh, Rumsfeld said, "If you want that ship, you, it's got to be a transformational ship. You've got to build that ship with." about, you know, 19 or 20 new technologies, new reactor, uh, new layout of the ship. It's got to be able to be manned with fewer people, uh, um, electromagnetic catapults and arresting gear, a new radar suite, you know, you name it, that ship has got an an incredible number of, uh, of new capabilities and new weapon systems and new electromagnetic uh, uh, catapults and traps. And, and, you know, it's just incredible. And, and when you, when you put a whole bunch of new capabilities on the lead ship of a new class of ships, you know, you're accepting an incredible amount of of engineering risk and that's what the Navy did. That's what, that's what uh, Donald Rumsfeld took on when he made that decision. Uh, and so here we are, you know, we've had some problems with the Ford, uh, but it's, it's now, Ready. It's underway, it's on its maiden deployment, and we'll see how it does. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, more and hearing from uh, a USNI news reporter is on board the Ford this week uh, as she begins her maiden deployment. So we'll have some USNI news reporting uh, uh, when she gets back from, uh, from the first couple of days on, on Ford's deployment. Um, okay, we got a couple of questions. Uh, so uh, Antonio Bricio writes... I'm very curious about Captain Swartz's article. We'll begin reading ASAP. What are your takeaways regarding air superiority in Coin? Yeah, that's one of the things that Captain Swartz mentions is that when they were uh, going into you know uh, fighting the Viet Cong uh, and particularly in the riverine system of South Vietnam that it was uh, it was incredibly important to have air superiority to be able to own the skies uh, both for the the uh, Brownwater Navy But also for uh, for the the special operations forces that were operating there, Uh, there's a a squadron called HAL-3, which was a helicopter um, attack light squadron uh, that operated. And I know Captain uh, Swartz had some uh, experience operating with HAL-3 in Vietnam, and, and they were credited with a lot of the successes that they had. Of course, you know, many people will say, well, we lost the Vietnam War. Yes, got it. Captain Swartz is not not uh, uh, disputing that fact, but his article, you know, there were some a period of time for a couple of years there where there was a big focus on on counterinsurgency and uh, and it went well until the strategy changed and then things did not go well. But for the time that Captain Swartz was there, his his tactical takeaways, his tactical lessons learned are very applicable um, and one of the points that he makes is that air, air superiority was a key ingredient. Um, Harry Lime writes: Have subs in the yard have the problem with self harm like the carriers have had? Well, that's a great question. You know, we we had on the show a couple of weeks ago uh, Captain or, or uh, sorry Commander Hollett, who as I mentioned is the author of this uh, piece about uh, submarine officer retention, but he and another author recently wrote an article that we published in the August issue called Every Sailor a Fire um, a Firefighter. Uh, and it was uh, specifically addressing, you know, two of the most famous fires that the Navy's had in the last 20 years. One was the USS Miami, which was set uh, in Portsmouth Naval Shipyard up in Kittery, Maine, Uh, It was set by it was a a, it was an incident of arson uh, on the on the Miami and uh, you know that that submarine was lost from that fire so yes uh, there's been uh, problems with uh, with self harm and now that I've answered that question I think you might have meant self harm not to the to the boat itself but self harm to the uh, submariners and I have not heard that problem I have not heard um, as we had you know back last summer Mick Pond Smith. Addressed the crew of the USS George Washington that was in an extended overhaul period, um, and they had had a couple of uh, suicides on board George Washington, and Mick Pond went down. And uh, you know, in some ways, he said some things that were not popular, and he got uh, pilloried for it. Um, but I have not heard that. I've not heard of uh, of stories of uh, of suicide on on uh, submarines recently. But that may just be that I'm not tuned into it uh, or tuned into those reports. Um, Anecdotally, yes, writes uh, steer Roberto, worse than deployment. Uh, So is that, um, I guess that's an answer to the self-harm question. Um, Okay. Yes, that's what I was asking. Thanks, Harry. Yeah, thanks for the question. I think it's a really good question. I would also draw uh, our readers' attention and listeners' attention to uh, the interview we had and the article we had by General Major General um, uh, Martin, Greg Martin, who was the former president of the National Defense University, uh, Army two star, uh, OIF combat veteran, had been, uh, you know, had commanded a brigade in Iraq. Um, and his interview and his story, his battle with mental health was, uh, you know, just incredibly personal. Um, it also showed that uh, mental health and suicide, and uh, you know th- these these challenges with uh, morale and depression and and suicidal ideation, they don't just impact young sailors, uh, but they also impact uh, up to and including very senior officers. So that was General Martin's uh, article was back in uh, in the August issue of Proceedings. Bipolar General there, uh, Heather Leg, my my uh, great. Um, Producer just dropped that into the uh, into the chat window. So Bipolar General was the, uh, the title of General Martin's uh, uh, article from the August issue. OK, um, I'm going to make a, a quick pitch for comment and discussion, which is what we call letters to the editor in proceedings. Uh, comment and discussion is the heart and soul of the open forum. Uh, so, you know, often I will tell people that no proceedings article, no one article is the end all and be all of the conversation. It's often just uh, the start of a conversation. So uh, specifically, I'd point to Commander Holwitz article on uh, J.O. retention and say, hey, you know, this is a, a sitting commanding officer of a submarine who has been in the, in the force for 20, uh, nearly 20 years He's also been a proceedings contributor and he's won a number of our essay contests over the years. Uh, But he's looking at this problem with J.O. retention and and thinking about how to solve it. Now, you might not like his his uh, his answers. You might not like his prescription, Uh, but you got to give him credit for coming up with an idea on how to how to go after this uh, significant problem for the submarine force. And if you have a different idea or you've got comments, um, you've got ideas, you've got uh, a rebuttal. Uh, write them up 500 words or less and submit them to comment and discussion at usni.org. That's all one word uh, comment and discussion at usni.org That is the email address for our comment discussion section. You know we get dozens of letters uh, every month. we uh, take the, the best ones and we publish them in proceedings and we also publish them online. So comment and discussion is a hugely important uh, part of proceedings and has been uh, since the days when we started. Uh, for those of you who don't know, why do we call our letters to the editor, comment, and discussion? Well, when proceedings, when the Naval Institute was started in 1873, 150 years next October, uh, the, the group of 15 uh, officers and faculty members at the Naval Academy who started the Naval Institute had monthly meetings, and they would discuss papers that they each wrote. And so somebody would present their paper and it would be followed by a period of comment and discussion. And then they would take the notes and they would write that up in the minutes of the meeting. So that's why our letters to the editor are called comment and discussion. Once we started publishing the magazine and it started reaching a broader audience than just those who could attend in person, then people could write in and provide their comments and discussion in writing. And so that's the, uh, the genesis of why our column is called comment and discussion. All right. Well, next month's issue is the Marine Corps Focus. We've got a great piece from General Berger, the Marine Corps Commandant, plus three winners, the three winners of the Marine Corps essay Contest, which we just finished judging and we're working into production right now. Uh, A a spoiler alert, the winning essay was won by a Marine Corps Major. Uh, The second prize was taken by a Navy Lieutenant JG and third prize by a Navy Lieutenant. So nice to see Uh, that Naval integration, Navy and Marine Corps uh, personnel professionals writing about the Marine Corps and writing about amphibious warfare, writing about how to make the Navy and the Marine Corps together better. Um, That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. If you enjoy the show, like us, subscribe to our channel, tell your friends, become a member at uh, usni.org forward slash join. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.